0: Welcome to the Proteomics in Proximity podcast, where your co-hosts Cindy Lawley and Serantis Klamidis from O-Link Proteomics talk about the intersection of proteomics with genomics for drug target discovery, the application of proteomics to reveal disease biomarkers, and current trends in using proteomics to unlock biological mechanisms. Here we have your hosts, Cindy and Serantis.
1: Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for joining Proteomics in Proximity. I'm one of your co-hosts, Cindy Lawley, and I have with me my other co-host.
2: Hello, everybody. and am Sharon I'm happy to be
1: here. Very good. So uh, so today we are joined by Mine Koperlu and Claudia Langenberg. We are uh, talking today about a wonderful paper that came out in Nature Metabolism in March called Proteogenomic Links to Human Metabolic Diseases. Very exciting paper with, you know, by by Claudia Langenberg and Mine Kopralou standards, a modest sample size, but amazing findings. So I think it's really enabling and uh, and we'll dig into that. But first, let's introduce our guests. Sarantis, do you want to do the honors?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to start with a PhD student from Gates Cambridge Scholarship and supervised by Dr. W. Langenberg. Uh, before his PhD, he a Bachelor of Studies in Human Genetics at UCM. And then, separately, she completes her Master of Philosophy in Genomic Medicine at the University of Cambridge, working in genomics data and genomics data and dealing with the population studies and the UK Biobank data sets. And uh, we are really looking forward to hearing about your project and uh, paper photogenomics. the genomics.
1: Yeah, and digging into how you got where you are. Anything you want to add to that, Mine, that you want people to know going in?
3: No, I think that's a very clear introduction, and uh, it's lovely to be here. And I'm looking forward to chatting a bit more about both our journey and our recent publication.
1: Awesome. Fantastic. So then I have the privilege and and the um, opportunity to introduce Claudia Langenberg. Now, Claudia is probably someone who needs no introduction, but... uh, The I think the impact that she's had in the publication space is huge. Last I saw, she had I think this was in 2021 over 300 peer-reviewed publications at her uh, very young age, and uh, and I think over 40,000 citations at that point, and that's already several years old. So you know this is a this is a a, a world renowned scholar that is uh working with Mine, and of course many of her publications are in the series the journal series like nature jama lancet um very uh very prestigious and very impactful, working with massive data sets. So I think of her as a large-scale population epidemiologist. Such a big word, but uh, uh, it integrates um, many of the omics. And I think she keeps an eye on the the technology advances to be able to uh, to to build systematic approaches to understanding human biology. So Claudia, I think now you're in um, you're at Queen Mary University of London. I think when I met you uh, originally, you were at uh, the Berlin Institute of, of Health uh, and, and Charité. Uh, so I'd love for you to just tell us a little bit about your position now and your affiliations, if you don't mind.
0: Well, I thank you so much for the extremely kind introduction. And I think uh, the most complimentary thing was about the young age, which is not only a compliment, but a lie. So yeah. <laughs> this, everything puts everything in perspective. And yes, uh, also I should say the work that we've done and Mina is a, a student at the University of Cambridge where I've had a dual affiliation and a long career prior to me arriving at the Berlin Institute of Health. So originally being German and training as a doctor in Germany, um, I came to the UK and I was in London originally where I did my PhD in epidemiology and a master's at the of Hygiene. And before I then went to Cambridge to focus more specifically on genomics and then later other omics. And so, yeah, it's a huge privilege to be here. And it's an even bigger privilege to work with talented people like Mina and others in our team. So uh, it's a real team effort and uh, a lot of fun there to do that and work with uh, people like that.
1: It does seem like you have fun. And I'll tell you what, When I've, whenever I've talked to Mine and when I've seen her present, she's always got a big smile on her face. So I would love to dig into your journey to end up in Claudia's lab. Mine, do you mind giving us a little background and how you got interested in science? I mean, feel free to start wherever you want.
3: No, sure. Um, I've always been very interested in science and especially biology, but especially I always wanted to do something with my career, which improves the lives of others, so contributes uh, to the society in a meaningful way. And I've learned said, given I was quite interested in biology, human uh, genetics especially quite interested me because a lot of the sciences are quite established in the sense that, you know, human genome is very recent compared to many other scientific fields and there's so much unknown. And I think that is especially what interested me as well as its potential to, you know, improve the current healthcare care system and the clinical translational potential of the human genetics findings. So that was my inspiration to go into that. And unlike some other people, I think I've been in a quite narrow specific uh, path ever since then. So I did my bachelor's at UCL, as Sarantis mentioned, um, in human genetics specifically. And after that, I did my master's in University of Cambridge in genomic medicine, which is where I got introduced to bioinformatics. So I did my master's project at Sanger Institute, working on UK Biobank, as well as whole genome sequencing data for population isolates um, with Elisa Guinea's lab at the time. And after that, I moved back to home, which is Turkey for me. To work on rare disease genetics, so I spent two years back in Turkey at Boazich University um, researching rare disease genetics. So that was more studying whole exome sequencing data from um, consanguineous marriages uh, or consanguineous parents having sort of disabled children, trying to better pinpoint the exact genetic changes that cause such severe rare disorders. And um, in the meantime, while I was back home, I was thinking about my PhD and what I might want to pursue and multi-omic integration. So better understanding the different omic layers and how that can actually improve our understanding of genomic studies and their clinical translation was what interested me. So Cla- I got in touch with Claudia and we had a brief interview and that was, I think, a beginning of such a beautiful collaboration, at least on my work.
2: And then, starting a little bit about your paper that you have presently, would you like to explain a little bit about this Epic Norfolk uh, study, of this Epic Norfolk uh, cohort? What's the characteristics of this cohort and why it makes this world special?
3: Um, sure. Epic Norfolk study as a population cohort um, that was first established in beginning of 1990. So it has approximately 30,000. Participants that were followed up um, phenotypically, so in terms of different uh, behavioral and sort of healthcare characteristics for several years, as well as linkage to their health records. And we had uh, proteomic samples measured from 3,000 of participants, But Claudia, if you have anything more to add on Epic Norfolk study, please.
0: No, I think I can say one of the opportunities this study has offered, and uh, I think the beauty of such prospective cohorts such as Epic Norfolk and UK Bioback and so on, things setting up in the, in the past is we benefit from the samples that were stored at baseline and liquid nitrogen. And then those samples are so valid because anything you can do in the future and you know, now you measure 3,000 and you measure 5,000 and you measure 10 and more thousand proteins, So anything we use now, we won't be able to use in the future. So we're always very cautious of that. Again, conscious of that and hence cautious with our sample use. So it's really important that uh, proteomic technologies now use such little sample. So you could have used more sample in the past to measure three proteins. So to be able to use thousands in such a small um, amount of blood is absolutely amazing. And to have the opportunity, you know, we weren't PIs, we are not PIs of those cohorts, the foresight of setting this up, you know, in Wareham in Cambridge, and before that, Katie Coe and others who led this study, and other cohorts that we had the privilege of using the, the samples for. It's really, really uh, amazing to be able to do that. That's one thing, but the other thing that's important is as time elapses, these cohorts become even more valuable because, you know, sadly, people have events, they uh, they, develop diseases, they die. So um, if you then look backwards because you have samples stored, provides the opportunity to have such an efficient design of doing it. You don't have to measure everybody, but you can have a kind of what I call a very nifty design in choosing people who have developed a disease, i.e. it's new onset disease, but the sample was stored before they had it. So you avoid this kind of reverse causation by which the disease impacts your proteome and hence you can't really disassociate this. So this is what we exactly did in this uh, context. And Mina's uh, study was one of the projects that we did on context of that design. But you can also look, you can look at different diseases based on the people who developed them in the study, Mm -hmm. use that baseline sample, and then you use a big control cohort of people who serve as the controls for many different diseases. It's called a nested case cohort study. And it's a really beautiful design, but that can only be used if you had the foresight of setting up a large perspective cord like that. So uh, we're very grateful to all the participants of Epic Notebook and the PIs, of course, who've enabled the use of that. And also um, coming to the cost of some of these kind of very, uh, you know, informative molecular technologies such as yours is, of course, they're not cheap. And hence that means if you can use a design that minimizes uh the number of samples you have to use for a given purpose, of course, that's incredibly useful for us. So,
1: and I think I, I just I just wanted to comment on this this liquid nitrogen aspect, this ability. I, I think this foresight. It's we. I work with a lot of groups that do a lot of different things with large population health studies. There are very few cohorts that had that much. Um, attention to reducing pre-analytical variation and tracking it as is documented in this cohort. So that's exciting to see. I think it's maybe less important for proteomics than metabolomics, as an example, but um, you work in all of that. And so, yeah, I just wanted to underscore that point. Yeah. Serrantis, please go ahead.
2: Okay. I would you like uh, Nina, to summarize a little bit the take-home messages of the main take-home of your paper and uh What's what's so exciting about this paper?
3: Yeah, of course. And just to also clarify the paper, I was the first author, but of course it was a teamwork and everyone contributed a lot making this work possible, including the epic Norfolk participants, of course. Um, Just to summarize the paper, um, I think I could just briefly say we looked at the Uh, sort of systematically linking genetic variants, blood protein levels, as well as disease risk data to be able to pinpoint causal genes and proteins that underlie diseases. So just to give a bit of background, since uh, enablement of the genotyping technologies, a lot of studies have been conducted, uh, associating genetic variants with different disease risks or dis- uh, yeah, disease susceptibility. And today, 200,000 genetic variant disease associations have been established and are publicly available. Looking at such numbers and figures, we would have assumed we know the biological basis for all diseases. However, we all know that's not at all the case. And I think that's where proteomics and different sort of omic layers come into place in helping us better understand the disease mechanisms, actually what's happening underlying the diseases um, in our body. So in this study, uh, we had samples from 3,000 individuals measuring three, approximately 3,000 blood protein levels. So we first looked at the genetic regulation in the cis regions. So the cis regions are the protein encoding regions and sort of flanking regions around the gene for the protein target itself because of our more directly um, sample size, as we've already mentioned. So we have looked at the cis genetic regulation for different blood protein levels, some of which had never been targeted before, given the mm-hmm. recent um, Olin-Trop form. And then we have used that knowledge, that sort of proteogenomic knowledge to better understand causal genes of proteins that underlie diseases in a systematic mm-hmm. manner. So we have first um, mm-hmm. looked at... Shared genetic regulation for different, um, disease outcomes and blood protein level regulation, PKTLs, as we call it, protein quantitative trait loci. And we identified, um, 224 targets yes. that, um, regulate 500, um, approximately 500 different traits. And we also refined the causal genes or proteins for 40% of the previously established genetic risk loci, which was, um, which sort of highlighted that even moderately sized proteogenomic studies can contribute to our novel biology for existing risk loci that were um, published in the literature. And finally, we looked at the convergence of the PTTL studies and the regulation uh, with the rare um, variant gene burden analysis. So on one hand, comparing the loss of function of the genes with the sort of genetic regulation of the um, proteins.
1: So I wanted to click back on this, the disease associations that were enabled by genetics. I think the... um, the ability to make those associations in small sample sizes was, it was like low hanging fruit in the early days of that sort of GWAS era, which I think of maybe early 2000s, right? 2005, 2006, that's when that we those things started really ramping up discoveries. And then they became harder and harder to make those associations um, as those really strong strong associations were were discovered and documented and then larger and larger populations were needed to make those associations I think um, what you're saying is that these other layers are helping you to to do more with those more modest populations and Claudia already made the point about the costs of layering on metabolomics or proteomics or these additional omics can you say something about what what that enables and what you think will happen in the future there. Yeah, of
3: course. So basically, as I mentioned, and as you mentioned already, thousands of genetic variants to disease associations have been made, and those were very valuable and contributed to our understanding of diseases to some extent. However, a majority of those associations fell into non-coding regions of the genome, meaning it was quite difficult to actually interpret which causal gene or protein was acting in causing the disease. Hence, it was quite difficult to understand the pathways and the mechanisms. And as, while we don't have a functional target, it's difficult to actually build more effective and safer therapies or repurpose existing ones. So in that sense, having the additional layer of the proteomic states actually helps us to pinpoint a functional entity that plays a role in the disease. And um, so... Uh, as I said, there's certain statistical methods that help us better understand the shared genetic regulation of both the disease risk and the blood protein levels or abundance of certain proteins. And if we see strong statistical evidence for a shared genetic regulation, then within a large region of many candidate genes, we can actually refine it to a single candidate gene or protein for particular diseases in a systematic way which can then be used for, as I mentioned, intervention or more targeted therapies, safer therapies. So in that sense, even moderately sized molecular QTL studies can really help us better understand the disease and pathways that are involved and also build uh, more effective therapies.
1: I think we're on a path. I think this is a path for discovery that is, I think, just going to ramp up, I think, very similarly to what we've seen those discoveries enabled by genetics. I'm really excited about that. I keep, I always think about these different diseases that might share pathways in common, um, almost like a Venn diagram, and understanding the complexities of, of why certain proteins or protein pathways are uh, related to like I don't know. Caspate, I think, is like showing up in breast cancer and asthma. For just, it's an example I think of. And those diseases are so disparate to me. Um, I wonder if you uh, if you think that proteins or pathways that are showing up as causal. And I think you make a good point about why causality is so important for therapies. Do you expect those same proteins to be causal in other diseases? Like, what do we what do we what do you think about that? You're you're much more versed in and seeing the data.
3: So I think that is sort of the beauty of our study design, that we sort of approach the data, different layers of biological data, starting from the genome all the way to the phenome in a hypothesis-free manner. So doing that and looking at the data systematically without any sort of prior um, hypothesis allows us to see what the data tells us. So as you mentioned, certainly looking at uh, what we have discovered in our paper is that genetically anchored proteogenomic studies, so the proteomic studies can help us discover molecular hubs and associations of proteins with diseases that we wouldn't have predicted otherwise from just the general literature or prior knowledge. And that is actually quite interesting to follow up because, yeah, the data uncovered something that was unexpected, but likewise, we can also see quite specific protein disease pairs, which can also allow us to have quite specific therapies for potentially not intervened diseases before. But just one more thing to add Um, is that we currently have not a very full, complete picture of the proteomics, so we're only able to do that for the proteins we're able to target. So, hopefully in the future you've asked about the future directions before, having a more complete um idea about the full landscape of proteomics would be ideal to better understand those more regular hubs that we have just talked about. But to maybe maybe
0: maybe I can add one small thing to this because um as Mina's work and other proteogenomic work that we've previously done in the group has shown is exactly the beauty of that. As you scale up the number of proteins and as you scale up the number of diseases you can look at. This kind of proteogenomic approach that doesn't require that each of these layers is measured in the same sample size. You can, you can utilize the power that you have across any biggest genomic study for a disease that you have together with your uh, protein genetic study. And that is the beauty of looking exactly like you say, Cindy, Ed the overlap of a specific gene to protein across any disease that you can look at. And because the community is sharing data openly or the summary statistics for each of these diseases is shared openly, for most diseases, cancer is lagging behind, sadly, a little bit in terms of the openness, but for many diseases that is there, it enables us to do exactly that, to draw a whole map uh, from gene to protein to disease. And is that map, is that link? coincidental or is it possibly causal and a real chair genetic um you know signal and that's that's a such a good way of prioritizing what you then use for further experimental work downstream because of course this is in a computational approach and non-ultimate an proof, but it's such a good and data-driven way of prioritizing uh links between diseases, links for where we have already, you know, specific drug targets, nuance, uh potentially adverse effects. So it's it's a really versatile way. Of looking at all of that, and then just maybe to add one small thing again, as you said, as uh, you you can kind of ramp this up as you increase the number of proteins, or as you increase the density of your genomic array or the the coverage of rare variants and by sequencing and so on. But of course, an important part of really making this more useful is increasing the phenotypic spectrum. And that really is only possible if we move away from diseases we all study opportunistically to diseases that you can't really easily measure or nobody's interested in, but they're still really important for patients and uh, a lot less headway has been made in terms of understanding their genetics or releasing the summary statistics for those studies. And that's really where huge studies come in that have electronic health record data from GPs, from hospitals, from death certificates, and bring all of this together. And that's why, for example, UK Biobank, but also FinGen and many other endeavors around the world uh, can really help us to not just increase the molecular side, but the phenotypic side. And that, that is so important to also link diseases which have not really been so much in the center of attention, and but
1: need to be. Can you give an example of one of those diseases? Are we thinking rare disease here? Um, Um, So I think it can be across the frequency
0: spectrum. It can be across specialties. I think uh, disease examples that I would choose are those that possibly are not as easily uh, diagnosed, uh, are not severe enough to always require hospitalization, because I think most people around the world have tried to get their hospitalization data ICD coded. It's, It's relatively easy. But the data, for example, in the UK that comes from in England from primary care records is harder to map. It's kind of a bit more diversity in terms of systems, the data structures and so on. So diseases that are predominantly managed and diagnosed in primary care are
1: more where we need to move towards. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. There's something a little
2: technical question. Okay. You have some force positive, right? And then, would you like to see how do you make this selection of force positive and how you define this in your in your analysis compared to other technologies, for example, that you have tried before?
3: Um, sure. You're asking about force positive, positive, yes, yeah. yes. So in our analysis, we try to be quite careful, given we're working with data and diseases, as you mentioned. So in terms of right. our analysis, we always use quite a rigorous um, threshold to report what is statistically significant. So in terms of our um, statistical threshold, we always correct for genome-wide significance times the number of proteins that we are including in the study to sort of minimize the error, including thousands of targets in this case. So we usually go for quite a rigorous statistical threshold. As well as good QC before we feed them the data, of course.
2: that's great. You mentioned before also that uh, a lot of uh, this falls in non coding regions, right? A lot of this is, uh, this 6 may fall in non coding regions. Do you have an idea what type of these regions mm-hmm. may have uh, promoters? They are, uh, I don't know, they are enhancers. Uh, do you have an idea? Can, can you map these regions?
3: So uh, we map. Met- All the variants in terms of what they're predicted to be in the genome. So we look at, you know, the proportion of protein altering variants, those variants that fall into the protein encoding region itself and alter the shape or the structure of the variant, uh, the protein Sorry, and the percentage that fall into non-coding regions. However, uh, there's quite limited knowledge about the functional characterization of the non-coding variants themselves, apart from particular groups studying particular genes and um, more sort of cellular or uh, functional models. So in terms of our work so far, we have only computationally annotated the predicted consequence of the variants. However, of course, further follow up would enlighten what exactly those non-coding variants do in terms of cis-regulation of the protein itself.
2: Yeah. That's great. And also, I think uh, a lot of studies, and then from the literature, as you, as you mentioned, for different proteins, from the literature, from some mice knockouts, you can have an idea of how they regulate regulated, and how good they regulate it. Is there any plan to follow up like more with mice or with more knockouts? Is there any plan in the future to follow some of these targets or collaborations mm-hmm. that in this respect? If you can serve that information.
3: I mean, we're, we of course always welcome any sort of collaborations on the functional characterization. The idea of doing these studies is not to put a long Excel sheet as we have done so far in terms of our supplementary table, but rather genuinely understand the biological mechanisms that underlie diseases and how that can contribute to clinical translation of some of the findings in the sort of longer run. So. Without maybe an open call that, if anyone finds any of the targets that we highlight interesting, we are of course very keen to functionally characterize and better understand the mechanisms.
1: I think in the paper you mentioned something about. I was just looking for the the reference. Something about cellular models and the history of of demonstrating functional associations or an understanding of function around cellular models, and some of the um complement some of the how this approach can be a complementary way to add an understanding of function. Do you mind talking a little bit about that, like where this fits into our traditional approaches? Certainly, like where it might fit in in understanding what we're learning from single cell or spatial uh, uh, work that some of those technologies are really advancing right now. I'm curious your thoughts on those.
3: No, of course. Um, So all what we do in terms of our team is more bioinformatics. So what we work with is what the data and sort of predictions and better understanding the computational and statistical conclusions we can draw from the data, however, as we all know, and as you have highlighted, there are complementary ways in better understanding these. And basically, we are very interested to see whether what we observe computationally and statistically actually translates into biology, starting from cellular models, building up to animal models and sort of human biology. So what we observe in almost um, quite isolated, looking at singular sort of targets and singular genetic variants, we would be quite interested in whether our conclusions hold or what um, sort of variations from our conclusions we see in different models so I definitely agree that they're complementary and there's ways of integrating those knowledge to build a more comprehensive or sort of holistic understanding of the biological
1: mechanisms. Oh I love it. I love the background you have both in an understanding of epidemiology and your MAD bioinformatics skills. Where does machine learning fit into all of this? Is it something you've yeah, I'll just stop with the question.
3: <laughs> no, of course, um, machine learning and artificial intelligence is certainly fields um, that are very quickly developing and are grabbing a lot of attention at the moment. Mm-hmm. And some of the software we use are considered basic machine learning models themselves. But in terms oh. of applying machine learning or artificial intelligence to sort of proteogenomic studies or more biological studies at the moment is rather challenging because, as we've all um, spoken about, this large, high-throughput biological data is recently being generated, and they are so recent that we're spending a lot of time better understanding what they mean and what they actually are. And currently, the biological data, the way they are, actually violates a lot of the assumptions that machine learning and artificial intelligence models make, so Uh, I think in the future, they can certainly be very useful, but we certainly need to be cautious and better understanding our data before feeding them into the models, I personally say. And maybe I can add something to this.
0: So I'm currently sitting in what's called the dairy. So when I came to QMUL, Queen Mary University of London last September, so I had this opportunity to set up this new Institute for Precision Healthcare. And, uh, it's like, it's kind of quite unique because it's a cross-faculty institute, so it really draws in very broad range of expertise and the, you know, it's a big plans and developments for new life sciences building. And that's all quite a way away. So we have to wait for this. So there we need an interim space and we're very lucky. And it's actually not coincidence where I'm sitting right now is called the Derry. it's the only other cross-faculty institute that GMUL has in Derry, States for the Digital Environment Research Institute which is focused on AI, and since it's not just AI in healthcare, it's AI across a broad range of applications, you know, from games, we're sitting on the second floor with the games people, which my my kids think I have the best job in the world, being to With games people they want. Actually, what they don't know, when they have conversations about board games, I've not heard of a single one of them, so anyway, I can't mention not really anything else, but anyway... Having said that, <laughs> this is the environment in which it can flourish. So we focus on health and on healthcare data. And Dairy has that as a as part of its remit as well. So it's really important to bring this together. And, you know, going away from the kind of uh, you know, this this pitch on how it's important, the concrete thing that we're already doing is, you know, the molecular data is so complex. You need mm-hmm. smart and efficient and unbiased ways of data reduction. And that, at the moment is most of the use for machine learning in our in our in uh, our know, arena of work. So where we kind of try to let's say predict diseases, how are you going to prioritize? Nobody wants to go into the clinic and measure three thousand proteins to predict a disease. Do you even have any benefit of uh, what's the incremental value of measuring proteins once you have a core set of 10 most important ones? So those are all questions that machine learning can help us to to address more systematically, and that's incredibly useful. So it's a steep learning curve for us as well. It's not our bread and butter. We're not the methodological experts of developing it. But being in an institute like this one, for example, means that we're only very short way removed, or yeah. not as removed from the people who do develop these methods, and that we at the right time can employ them, can test are they useful, could they be biased, and so that's really, really, uh, yeah, it's a great opportunity, I think.
1: Well, I think those people that are developing those methods aren't going to have the biological know-how to know when they've overtrained those methods and are going off on a spurious. Tangent. So the context, I, I think, is essential. I think Mine makes that point.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's it's this uh, boy, it's the it's it's a team effort, right? And you need yeah. the people who have the samples and the clinical knowledge. You need the people who have some of the kind of bio, bioinformatics, computational, and you need the you know methods developers. So it's
1: it's beautiful. Nobody can do all of it themselves, so, uh, you know, alone. No. So I think it's yeah. a great. It's CQ, right? It's collaboration quotient, right? You have your IQ, your EQ, and your, your CQ. And my experience is once you, once you develop your collaboration quotient, which you're teaching your students and your postdocs and all of that, if they don't already have it, Claudia, is it, once you have it, you can't go back. I don't think. I think once you experience the joy and the ability to work together cross functionally, it's um, it's it's really remarkable what can be accomplished.
0: Well, coming back to the question that Sorantis was asking, and I think it's a very good one. As Mina has said, so part of the problem that we have encountered is, you know, here's Mina and comes up with these beautiful candidates, and it's almost there's there's two things that are important to kind of what what she said um, so well, which is that you know, using humans as the model organism is a great way of prioritization. That's number one. But the second one is kind of you know if you come from a Bayesian framework, you really want to find out what's 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 your greatest chance of success. How do you improve increase your prior of this having success? And given that the experimental sort follow of, up you know is expensive, it's lengthy, uh, and can go wrong in so many ways, it is it, it is really a, a great opportunity. It's only you know to 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 prioritize on the basis of human proteogenomics, as Mina has said. The problem is how do you get people who have the experimental setup to come to our results and take it. Because that's not as easy as we thought. We think, oh, here, you know, here's... We'll so
1: excited to see it. We go to
0: the world expert in this and bring them, you know, our example. It's hard. It's hard to motivate people to step out of what they're already doing and focus on your finding. It's hard if you have somebody who's focused their whole life on a given pet protein to say... How about this one? So, yeah. and, and we need help, I think, to try and learn how we engage the relevant clinicians and, you know, molecular biologists and other people to, to also use our results rather than at least, you know, complementing what they're already doing in order to be able to follow some of it up, because we do depend on the functional follow up and on the expertise of those people. So how do we reach out? How can you help us to reach out to the relevant people to really make it worthwhile?
1: What are the titles of those people? I mean, what what are their jobs? <laughs> you know, like I know there's more than one, but I think of translational, right? That that certainly translational scientists or implementation scientists, or maybe those are are pieces of it. But you know, who are the ones that we need to listen to listen to this?
0: So. I think it depends on the stage of translation that you're at. Yes. If you're yeah. really only for the experimental workup, it's a very different set of people than it would be for the people. If you have a different kind of work where you really are ready to maybe possibly already consider a, the, the initial trial or you mm-hmm. need a relevant clinician or head of that clinical department to enable kind of the, the setup within the, let's say, hospital. So I think it really depends on what, what level you're talking the initial Level I think is for us the experimental follow up and validation because what we do is yeah. statistics and probability, both in a, uh, but it's still an association. We are under up down. We do not prove causality, and so that kind of functional follow up is crucial. And those are the people in, in, at the first yeah, stage. And I, I think.
2: think also you don't know the cause. Some of those cases you don't know the cause or the effect, right? You don't know if this is what you see in the probability level. is a cause or could be the effect, could be you know both pinky, right? I, mm. I, I, I comment the last comment to minute I really like uh, when you you see the localization with eqtls from different tissues, and this is also equation like what we see in the plasma proteome, it uh, reflects what happens in the tissues. And do you have any comment on that? Uh, how do you see that this is correlated, and uh, what is the distribution, the contribution of the singular tissue to the plasma proteome? Do you have some examples and, and or sh- some ideas on that?
1: And a shout out to Nomad and Gtex. I will say fantastic yeah, resources. Yeah. Yes.
3: Now we are very grateful for all the publicly available resources, ranging from the EQTL studies all the way to the GWAS summary statistics, which have made our work um, possible as well. Mm-hmm. In terms of the EQTL overlap, that is rather challenging in our field in the sense that uh, we see, for example, in our study that only approximately half of the PTTLs that we see uh, mm-hmm. sort of are in um, close linkage, to equilibrium with an ECTO. And in certain examples, we see beautiful overlap, right? Like we find an example with a disease for that acts in a particular tissue. And we see co-localization, quite strong co-localization with the tissue of interest, where the story becomes quite beautiful and everything makes sense. However, there's also the flip of the coin where we see in some examples quite limited overlap between the PKTL and the EKTL data. And although our current paper hasn't really focused on that, I think that is something that we as a community need to better understand where there is overlap and where there is a lack of and what might be the underlying reasons definitely.
1: I think this is a great sp- Bought to mention the, the really interesting link to type 2 diabetes that you found in here that, that we want someone to follow up on, as Claudia mentions. Do you want to just summarize that really quickly, that pathway?
3: Of course. Um, one of the examples that we have um, noticed or we have highlighted in our paper is the gastrin-releasing peptide, or GRP for short, and it's linked with type 2 diabetes. So what we saw in our paper is that beautifully different layers of biological data, so evidence from my studies, evidence from human data, as we have been talking about, and different sort of similar models all overlapped with the same conclusions. So what we've identified was that the higher levels of GRP in human plasma were um, co-localizing with um, lower risk of type 2 diabetes. And when we integrated in the different sort of intermediate layers, which are different body fat distribution traits, so where we accumulate fat in our body as well as the overall um, fat, what we observed was that higher levels of GRP was um, leading to less fat accumulation overall in our body, leading to lower risk of type 2 diabetes. And as I mentioned, there was uh, previous studies that were published where human recombinant GRP, um, led to actually reduced food intake and, uh, weight loss. So we have highlighted in our paper that GRP can be, um, a mm-hmm. new example for a potential therapy for type 2 diabetes by decreasing the yeah. or, um, yeah, lowering the fat, um, accumulation in our body.
2: It's actually a whole topic for the weight loss, right? A lot of companies now they try to follow this weight loss. You see, basically, the loss of winning, you in, in the game of weight loss, drugs. And, and I think that's really really interesting research. And I'm looking forward to people following up on that. I'll be, weight, I'll be weight. At this point, And I I'm, love
1: the use of the word, the word beautiful, right? Yeah. It's beautiful because these layers are all agreeing. It's giving us a preponderance of evidence that gives us a lot of confidence that gives us confidence in the other results that you see too, right? So the fact that you've built this systematic map of, of these potential causalities, um, yeah, this corroborates, I think, the approach, which is, is certainly beautiful.
2: Great. At this point, I mean, I would like to thank Mina and Claudia. I mean, we we'll just stay here and discuss for hours or for days with some amazing paper and uh, amazing data. I mean, we learn so much today. And uh, I would like to invite you, if you have to add something to our uh, audience, uh, Mina or Claudia, from your perspective and where you see this going to the future, that would be great to have your feedback, your thoughts about
1: Yeah, anything you'd like to add, we'd love to hear it. No, I think currently, as I mentioned, the
3: increasing um large-scale, high-throughput generation of different layers of biological data is currently very exciting, and I'm very excited to be in a field where we're better understanding their potential translational no. capacities. And with that, I also would like to thank both my colleagues, which have enabled all the work that we do possible, as well as the participants of Epic Norfolk study and the past and present team members, which have made the study possible.
1: Anything more from you, Claudia?
0: Yeah, I just, I think I said already got moving forward, how it'd be very valuable to increase the kind of phenotypic uh, space and the diseases we can look at. I think also moving forward, I certainly think, I mean, the the beauty of these large-scale uh, population-based studies is one thing, but certainly one of the reasons why I love sitting here in East London and being like just a hundred meters away from one of the largest hospitals is because the next step really is how do we enable in you know, a clinical proteomics, i.e. Mm. proteomics in patient studies, how do we design that well and in a way that enables flexibility of different research questions. So that's kind of what I want to focus on and which I think will be very exciting. And for that, we really need technologies that are kind of ready to move to that standard relatively quickly, and so I think that's an exciting new area, and uh, doing that in a way that is affordable, even within the context of an, a national health system. So it's exciting; it's a really amazing times, so and working together with um, talented people like Mina and other people in our teams. Just uh, as you say, you know, and as actually one of my mentors say that, you know, if it's not fun, it's not epidemiology.
1: <sighs> I love that. Well, you certainly make it look fun. That's for sure. Now, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk today. It was our thank pleasure to have you. Pleasure. All right. Thanks, everyone.
3: Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Proteomics in Proximity podcast brought to you by Olink Proteomics. To contact the hosts or for further information, simply email info at olink.com.